You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. This is the good news of the gospel. God made us, showed us how to live, but we chose our own way. Our sins separated us from God. But God had a compassionate plan. The Father sent His Son, Jesus, to restore all that was broken. We couldn't comprehend Jesus. Or His supposed kingdom. His message was radical and offensive. So So we we killed killed Him. But a greater story was being told. The Father placed the wrongdoings of the entire world, past, present, and future, on Jesus, making a way back to Himself. Now, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are raised to new life, free from all guilt and condemnation, as God is making all things new. His Spirit now lives in those who believe to take His good news to all people, even to the ends of the earth. This This is the the Gospel. Hi, TVC family. My name is Luis Portillo, and I'm one of your church planters here, planning to plant Iglesia Cristiana in Cusco in Peru next year. And if you want to know more about that, I'll be standing outside in the foyer next to the sending tables after the meeting. Today, I'm going to read scripture from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read in Spanish, and you can follow along in English. Verse 9. Mas vosotros sois linaje escogido, real sacerdocio, nación santa, pueblo adquirido por Dios, para que anunciéis las virtudes de aquel que os llamó de las tinieblas a su luz admirable. Vosotros que en otro tiempo no erais pueblo, Pero que ahora sois pueblo de Dios, que en otro tiempo no habíais alcanzado misericordia, pero ahora habéis alcanzado misericordia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Luis. Hey, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. First Peter, that will be our passage. We're literally just going to look at it phrase by phrase. Uh, Before we dive in, though, this morning, the... The, the scriptures would ask us to pray for peace in Jerusalem. Um, and so I want to take just a moment or two and do that. Uh, I, I think for you and I, we, we see things flare up over there, you know, quite often. And it's easy to kind of just go, oh, there it goes again. But I think like what you're seeing right now is kind of unpre- like you'd have to go back to the 70s to see uh, something as brazen and crazy as what we're seeing right now. So I, it's a complex political, I'm not, that's not where I'm going. Uh, I'm going with, okay, prince of peace, bring your peace onto this part of the world, a part of the world that can't seem to find it. Uh, and so join me as I pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage. Father, we thank you that we live in a place where such things are even far from our imaginations. Like there's no um, low grade at any moment. Something could blow up. Somebody could be kidnapped. Some people could just be murdered in front of us. And yet um, this is exactly the opposite of what's happening in Jerusalem right now. Uh, And so I pray for Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip and that whole area that your 
peace would reign there, that it would establish itself among peoples who can't seem to. Um, they keep moving past each other, two completely different worldviews slamming into one another. And I pray specifically for those families that have lost loved ones or currently have kidnapped wives, moms, and children, um, that you would bring about peace in this part. It's not too hard for you, and so we ask that you might bring it. Um, let, let it be as we see updates and we scroll past things that we would remember to pray uh, and, and to believe that you are able. I thank you that we already got to sing this morning. We know how the story ends, uh, and so I pray that you'd keep our heads lifted up um, to the peace that will one day uh, cover the earth like the water covers the seas. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, that's not where you are today, where, I, where, where we're going to land, but Acts 16, we see the Apostle Paul uh, show up in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was one of those um, kind of uh, ancient cities that, that made the world work. It, it was a coastal city. It, it had uh, high trains. So think um, like New York, L.A. kind of city. It was a culture-setting city. And, and when the Apostle Paul rolls up in here, there, there are no Christians in Philippi. In fact, in this moment of history, there, there's probably 20,000 Christians on earth, right? This is a whole new thing. Um, and, and so the Apostle Paul shows up and on the outskirts of town, uh, there's a, it looks like a women's Bible study going on. I don't know if Jen wrote it or, uh, but there's a women's Bible study out there. Um, and it is filled with Jewish women studying the Torah and a handful of what the Bible would call God-fearers. And God-fearers were men and women that had rejected kind of the Roman polytheistic view of the universe where they were like, there was a God for everything and all of those gods must be appeased if you were gonna have the kind of life that you wanted. They had rejected that, what simultaneously didn't know who God was. And so we find in this little women's Bible study on the outskirts of town, Jewish women from the synagogue and then sprinkled into that group are some God-fearers, right? Some non-Jewish women who are curious about who God might actually be. Now, one of those women is a woman named Lydia, and Lydia stands out uh, among uh, the people that are at this Bible study, specifically because she's kind of a fashion icon in her day. And, and if you're asking me uh, why I think that or, or why I would say that, uh, it's because what we read about her in Acts 16, starting in verse 11, is that she was a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, which means very little to you and I in an age of, of synthetic material. Uh, but back in the first century, the only way to make purple cloth was to find this, these snails that had like just a tiny little drop of dye in them. So you'd have to harvest thousands of snails and then get that and then make, which is why purple was the color of royalty. And if Lydia is a dealer in purple fabric, then she is dialed in to the who's who of the ancient world. She knows kings and senators and governmental authorities and the famous and the wealthy. And what we learn about Lydia is she's got a house in Philippi, but she also got a house in Thyatira. All right, that she got a, she like in the hills uh, outside of LA, but she's also uh, Upper East Side in Manhattan. I mean, this, this woman's got some flow. She's got some cheddar and she is a good leader because she obviously has a ton of people working for her. And she's at this little Bible study and, and Paul shows up and he starts to fill in the blanks for her. 
Yeah, that, this is who God is. And by the grace, Lydia believes. She's our first Christian in Philippi. And she's so blown away by the gospel that she invites Paul and all of his crew just to, hey, if it pleases the Lord, come stay in my house. And, and Paul's like, all of us? And she's like, okay, no, yeah, I, I've got, I got a house, all right? So well, why don't you come take the east side of the house and, and let me feed you and let me take care of you and let me fund this mission forward. And so the first convert, millionaire CEO fashionista. And then, yeah, hallelujah, let it be. If that's you today, he's here for you. Now, the second convert. So, because now you're like, okay, this is going to be that bougie kind of church. All right. Like Highland Park money starting to come. And then the second convert, just a few verses later, is a demonized slave girl who's being used by wicked men for their own financial gain. And so there are these men who own this woman, and she is demonized, and that demon gives her the ability to see people's future, to know things about them that, that she shouldn't know, and these guys have monetized that. Well, Christ has come, right, to break the back of bondage. And so Paul casts the demon out of the slave girl, and in so doing, is sent to prison. And, and so now we have we have a fashionista millionaire CEO at the church of Philippi, and now we've got a formerly demonized, former slave girl, and this is shaping up to be quite a wild home group. This is shaping up to be quite a while, you know, a little wild gathering on Tuesday nights moving forward. And then in prison, um, we see that, that the Apostle Paul and his crew, they've been put in stocks. They are being tortured. Now, what we know about the jailer is that he's blue collar, he's former kind of soldier in the army. That's what we know about how Romans would deal with their former soldiers is they would move them into governmental positions like that of jailer or sheriff or, or roles like that. And, and so we know our boy is violent. We know he's a violent man. He's prone to violence. And we know that even because the magistrate just commanded him to hold Paul and his companions. And instead he put them in stocks. He tortured them. And so Paul, being tortured, starts to sing. What a frustrating man if you hated Jesus. Right? He's in stocks. He's all jammed up. He can't move. There's no meals. There's no cable. There's no... And he's singing to the Lord. And in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake. And the earthquake breaks open all the doors. Well, according to Roman law, if this jailer were to lose a prisoner, it would mean his life. They would kill him for losing the prisoner. And so he decides that he would rather take things in his own hands. So he pulls out a sword and he's about to kill himself because running himself through with that sword apparently is better than what the magistrate's going to do with him. So he prepares to kill himself when Paul cries out from the cell, hold up. I don't know if he really said hold up. He said something to the man that stops him. And Paul says, we're all still here which was super disorienting to the jailer. And so then Paul shares the gospel and the jailer and his whole household are converted. And now the church in Philippi has a fashionista millionaire CEO, a former demonized slave girl, and a blue collar former special forces guy that's murdered quite a few people who's prone to violence. And we might look at all three of those, find a little bit of our own story and rejoice but this here, 
to, to me as a pastor, sounds like a disaster. Like, what are Lydia's struggles going to sound like to the slave girl's struggles? And how are both of them going to feel about this man that is obviously a part of a system that has been oppressive to all of them and still is prone to outbursts? I'm guessing that. The text doesn't say that. I just know enough about human nature that we tend to uh, kind of white knight these people in a way that's not fair. They're humans. The compulsions you would have as a special forces soldier that's done a lot of killing and is used to handling things with violence and you try to kind of climb out of that, your tendency, your compulsions are going to be back towards that. When all you've ever known is being owned and abused and taken advantage of and you're going to have some issues that flare that Lydia's certainly not going to understand and that this guy's going to want you to just get over. Right? And yet, this is, this is what we see in Philippians 16, and I would argue this is kind of what it's like to belong to a church. I've tried to say before, and I'll say it again, I'm just going to keep saying it until like, it's become our vernacular, it's how we understand it. Uh, the Bible most frequently is written in Texan. All right? The Bible most frequently is written in Texan. Here's what I mean by that. There's not a lot of you individual in the scriptures. There's a ton of y'all in the scriptures. Or since a lot of California transplants are here, you guys. So there's a lot of y'all and there's a lot of you guys and there's very little you in the Bible. Now that's hard for us because as Westerners, and I'm not dogging that, I think Western Civ has done a profound amount of good in the world and I think you're a fool to argue against it. And I know it's sexy right now to tear everything down and not build anything, but Western Civ has created some order uh, and, and some help in this world that it knew nothing of before. So I'm not dogging being Westernized. I'm saying that one of the back edges of that blade is our radical individualism. So there's no room for many of us with y'alls and you guys and we's and us's. There's me and mine. And the, the Bible tries to create something very different than that. It's, it's far more collective in its addressing of people. And, and let me, let, I'll just put this on the screen to help us. Individualism is focused on the rights and concerns of each person, right? Is that not the air we breathe? What about me? What about what I like? What about what I want? Our whole world is shaped by individualism. More and more and more and more algorithms are building exactly what you want. Algorithms are building exactly what you want from what you scroll to what you see to what you watch. All of it's being controlled in a way that makes you feel like you actually have a say in the matter. No, no, no. It, it is being catered to exactly you as an individual. The goal is to keep you on it, to keep you coming back, to keep drawing your attention. So individualism is, the fo is focused on the rights and concerns of each person, while collectivism stresses the importance of the community, which is, by the way, this individualism idea. This is new in human history, guys. This is kind of a brand new, let's give this a try. And I would just eagerly ask you to look up and say, hey, it's not going well. This isn't going well. It's not going well for anybody there's like nobody, you're like, this thing's really just made the life I wanted. This thing's so destructive and subversive and it rots out from underneath the foundation 
of what it means to be human and certainly what human flourishing is meant to look like. So even in our passage today, you'll, you'll hear it. You'll hear the y'alls and the you guys. In fact, you can't even obey this passage without understanding it as us and we. You can't obey this. You can't come into this understanding just the me and I. Let, let's look at it again. This is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, all right, I'm, I'm sorry, that's y'all. That's you guys. That's we. That's us. That's not I, you. But you, how do I know, are a chosen race. Anyone here pull that off by themselves? No, you can't. You're like, chosen race. Who? Me. That's not enough to be a race. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Not a royal priest, a royal priesthood. A holy nation. Yet again, can't pull it off with the I and me. A people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's my sentence. I'm gonna take that passage, turn it into a sentence, and then we're gonna walk through it phrase by phrase. That you and I, we, are a community of salt and light, that's referencing last week's sermon, right? Receiving and proclaiming God's mercy, that's week one. So we're tying it together now that the gospel creates a people, right? So yes, individual salvation, but bigger than individual salvation, creates a people. So let's get back into our text, a community of salt and light. But you are a chosen race. Let me just stop there. A chosen race. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the argument here, and I know there might be words in there that that confuse you or bother you, all it's saying is that God's love for you begins with God and not you. That before the foundation of the earth was laid, God had set his affection on you in a way that's unique, right? and, And we talked about it this way when we were walking through Malachi. God always begins with the indicative before the imperative. He always begins like the book of Malachi does, right? I have loved you, declares the Lord. This is what we're seeing even in this fact. You are chosen. I love you. I have moved towards you. I have, if we could keep walking through the Bible, I have transferred you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of my beloved son. That's Colossians 1. That means there are still people stuck in the domain of darkness, but he has pulled us out of the domain of darkness and he's put us in the kingdom of his beloved son. In Ephesians 2, he says that we have been resurrected, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and Christ has made us alive. That means there's still people that are dead in their trespasses and sins. But if we're a Christian, we're not dead. We are alive. We have been resurrected. We have been brought back. We have been made whole. He has breathed life into our souls. That we are a chosen race. He has pulled us out from darkness and he has established in us his light. But we are also a royal priesthood. And this is a reference 
to the moral law of God. Anytime you see in the scriptures this idea of priesthood, it's referencing this space between knowing him and not knowing him, where those who know him stand between knowing him and not knowing him and usher in those who can't come in to the goodness of God. We are his priesthood. And partially what that means, referencing back to Exodus 19 and also Deuteronomy 7, 6, is that when God gives his people the moral law of God, he gives it because where it's kept serious and where we walk into it, we get a picture, we become a picture of the beauty of God's good design in contrast to the foolishness of the world. And so Christ has come and he has fulfilled the dietary law and the law of the temple, but the moral law still sits on the people of God. It is produced by the gospel. It is not obeyed to get the gospel, but rather produced by the gospel. You track them? Because that's huge. Because the number of you, even in here this morning, or watching online, that think you gotta clean some stuff up before you come to Jesus, you've just enslaved yourself to foolishness and nonsense the rest of your life. No, we come to him and are set free, and then in that state of being set free, the gospel produces the moral law of God as we repent and move towards it. Are you tracking with me on that? Because it's really big. It's really, really big, right? God never goes, if you obey these laws, then I'm gonna give you freedom. He always says, I'm gonna give you freedom so you can obey these laws. That's huge. That's really important for you to get, right? And so when he says, you're my royal priesthood, here's what he's saying. You will obey my moral law, and in that obedience, I'm going to show the world my beauty. I'm going to show the world what's good and right. I'm going to show the world human flourishing as I designed it to be. And the more you're obedient, the more beauty will be seen, and the more you rebel against my moral law, the more you will look like the world. But that will not be so among you. You are a royal priesthood. But then he goes on from there and he says that we're a holy nation. And I want to argue that we are a holy nation because our allegiance is primarily to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and no earthly kingdom nor political party that we belong to the Lord. And since he is holy and he is sovereign, our King, we will become more and more holy over time. And we can trust in one who does have his glory and our joy in view, which I don't think you can do with either of the political parties now. I think both of them are in it for self. Neither of them care anything about us. And they all are simply feeding off of the wealth and the brokenness of the system. But more on that this coming fall. I just, we just think we should, if you're going to be mad either way, I might as well, we'll just go at it in the fall. All right. And are there better choices than others? Absolutely. Are both corrupt? Yes. Can either save? Not a chance. But you should already believe that. Now, he moves from there and says this. I love this line, a people of his own possession. Um, so I do this little podcast. It's called The Overcomers. And what I'm trying to do is sit down with people who have been through it. Are you tracking with me when I say that? Like they've just been through it. They've been through the stuff that most of us think if that were to ever happen to me, I wouldn't survive it. You know what I'm talking about? So I was interviewing a family from the church this past um, week. Uh, just horrific, like one of the more heartbreaking stories I, I think we've experienced in my 20 years here. Just gut-wrenching. Um, and the dad. Um, the dad has had a hard time, man. It's been two years and he's had a hard time. Um, he never wavered in his hope for God's healing power. 
And the darker it got, the more he believed. Because he's like, this is when God shows off. Oh, oh, there's no hope. There's no other treatment. There's no, oh, here we go, Lord, flex on him. And he didn't waver. I mean, what kind of crazy faith is that? Like, didn't waver. And then it didn't go the way he wanted. And he just, he's like, hadn't been able to sing. And there are certain songs that are so triggering to him, he almost has to leave. It's been soul-crushing. And so here we are all crying on my couch. And, and he says, I know I'm a mess, but I'm his mess. And I thought, I won't tell you what I thought. It's inappropriate for this kind of room, but holy cow. Yeah, it might be a mess, but I'm his mess, a people of his own possession. I, I can critique the church with the best of them. I can't. What means so much wrong with the church? But it's his mess. It's his mess. It's a people of his own possession. And so um, th- this is why this idea of here we are together in this place, the we, we're, we're supposed to be this chosen nation, this royal priesthood, this holy people that are of his possession. That's why in our like 2030 vision that we sent to you again, because we doctored up some of the language, we say this, we are a diverse community of men and women, young and old, single and married, discovering together our identity, purpose, and belonging within God's good design. We impact thousands of kids and students week in and week out. This is like we're trying to create this space for the us-ness, the we-ness, the, the togetherness that God would call us into. And it's going to be imperfect, and it's going to be messy, and we're going to let each other down, and, and we've got to keep leaning in. We've got to keep leaning in. But what are we doing? Are we all just kind of huddling up and trying to be better people morally? Are we trying to, you know, act like better Christians? Or like, what are we doing as we've gathered, as he's done this work in us? Well, we don't have to guess because the text literally tells us. The text just literally moves on to after the people of his own possession. That, okay, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we have been pulled out of sin and death. We have been made alive in Christ. We have been chosen. We we have, in a very real way, become this priesthood that reflects the beauty of God to this world. We are growing in our holiness, and we are a people, not just person, but people that belong to him of his own possession. For what reason? That we might proclaim the excellencies of of his grace and mercy, that we might live in such a way, but also proclaim with our mouths the excellency of his goodness and grace. And so what is that? Well, that takes us back to week one, doesn't it? That even though, what do we proclaim? What are the excellencies of God? That even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God has shown his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And although the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through God, our Father. And that if you would just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you would be saved. And I know the the mind is like, well, what about this and that and this? And I'm like, please don't confuse the gospel with what the gospel produces. 
No, salvation is by faith and grace alone. It is not do these things in order to be saved. It is be saved and I will fill you with my spirit and empower transformation over time. And you, I, I'm going to say to you, you enslave yourself when you get it backwards. When you say, let, I mean, the number of guys I know in this community that find out I'm a pastor and say some kind of out of the side of their mouth, I'd come with that Lord would light me up in the foyer. He'd kill me in the parking lot. I'm like, the only kind of people that are welcome before the living God are broken people. Like, what have you done? Like, there's people in the Bible that make your sin look junior varsity. You kidding me right now? Like, what do you mean? Like, no, this is, this is the gospel. Not that you add anything to it. It's no longer the gospel. Like, why does Jesus need to die if you can get your crud together? Why, do we, why does Jesus have to die if you could pull it off with white-knuckled discipline? You could be good enough. You could fix it. You could, like, why, why die? Why not just send the law? Why not just give us clear, but you can't do it, weak as we are in the flesh. That's what the Bible says. That, that what we need most is not a therapist, although there's nothing wrong with therapy. What we need most is not a pill, although there's nothing wrong with a pill. What we need most is not to kind of um, like <laughs> check out. And that, that, no, what, what we need most is our soul healed at the deepest possible level, and only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. And, and so... Um, we, we, we proclaim these excellencies. That's why we even say, yet again, in our little statement of the kind of church we want to be, that we send wholehearted leaders and disciples into their homes and into neighborhoods and into our city and into um, the, the, the nations, to the ends of the earth. Like I would tell you, especially this month, the month of October is always a big month for us as a church, but because I don't know if you've known this is going on, but since the month of October started, there's been 24-7 prayer out of this church for this area and for this church. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people have signed up and they're given an hour to pray for this church, this place, this area. That What is this except proclaiming the excellencies of his grace? And, and then we've got people prayer walking in their neighborhoods and they're blessing homes. That's all we're doing, just walking and go, God, just pray a blessing over that house. If they're married, I pray you bless their marriage. If they've got kids, I pray you bless their kids. We're just walking, we're just blessing the area in the hopes that we might have spiritual conversations and let people know the excellencies of the grace of God. And if you feel on the outside of that, man, just come on. If you're like, well, I don't really know how to pray, do I have an offer for you? Uh, on Wednesdays from 11 to 11.30, right in this room, our staff gathers to pray. If you feel like you don't know how to pray, just come join us. It's, 30, it's a hard start and a hard stop, 30 minutes. I send out, I don't even set it up. I send an email out early that morning and then we just get in here and pray. If you want to come join us this month, just come and join us. It'll help you. Praying is how you learn how to pray, not reading books on prayer. You with me? Right? Let me, let's just do a little quick survey. I don't even have time. We're doing it anyway. Um, like how many of you have just read books on prayer and hadn't really gotten much better at praying? There we go. Look around. No, gosh, why so quick? Okay, like this is, you don't learn to pray by reading books about prayer. This is going to sound crazy. You learn to pray by praying. You, you pray and then you learn how to pray. And so if you're like, I don't, well, come pray with us. We'll be in here with you. You'll be in a room of, you know, a hundred and some people. It'll help you, right? Come join us. It's 30 minutes. So you can join us for that. Now, what happens here is he reiterates everything he's already said. And so I'll move to application. The very last phrase that we read is once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you and I are going to walk in this, I think there are two points of application. So let me give you my first. My first is to those of you who call this your church home. Um, if we're going to be obedient to this, that means we have to move towards one another 
in proximity, time, and energy that we have to say, these are my people. These are my people. The, the kind of on the fringes, not coming in, being a spectator is not. So I've used this language historically. There's nowhere in the Bible that you're commanded to go to a church. There's repeatedly places for you to belong to one. There's a difference between saying I go to the village and I belong to the village. Those are two completely different experiences. And, And so if we're going to fulfill what God has commanded, we have to give unto one another and commit one to another. And I know that can be scary because I know that we can fail each other and we can hurt each other. And a lot of that actually has happened. Uh, I had dinner with a family in the church this week, just a man and a wife who I, we did wrong. I, I mean, I, we didn't realize it at the time. It was kind of, it was a weird situation with a lot of variables. And man, we made the wrong call and we hurt them. And so I had to sit across from this past week. It wasn't the purpose of our meeting, but I didn't want to get into the purpose of our meeting. It was going, hey, I, I need to ask your forgiveness. We, we misplayed that and we hurt you and you have been faithful and kind. And I just want to, I want to tell you, man, I'm sorry, forgive us. We should have seen more clearly and we didn't and that hurt you. And so just by, just by way of, of honesty and transparency, how many of you even in here would say either organizationally or someone at this church has disappointed or hurt me, but I want you to raise your hand like you're not ashamed that it's happened. Yeah, get that hand high. Now I want you to look around. Like look around, just get the hand up, like, look around. Like it, it happens, you know, because there's just a lot of sinners here. And it, in one sense, we've got to go in with eyes wide open then in another sense, that should make us feel okay here. If the standard was perfection, we would show up and ruin it. And, and so it's okay that it's dangerous here. We just have to come in with eyes wide open, knowing this is what God has called us to, and God will make a way. And, and I know that what's happened is, man, we went through COVID. Not, I mean, if you're watching this online, not as long as most of the world went through COVID, but here in Texas, we went through COVID for a few months. And, um, and, and then what, what ended up happening is like new patterns were established. That's what happened. New patterns were established. And, and then what ends up happening is, man, oh my gosh, we stream now. Oh man, that lake is nice. I've been telling you the lake is nice for decades. But during COVID, you're like, man, no, he wasn't lying. The lake really is nice. And then what ends up happening is no longer in a group, no longer known, kind of pop your head in every once in a while, not serving anywhere. It's just like you come when you get a chance, you sit, you drink it up, and then you head on out. Well, that's not belonging. And there's no way to fulfill this by doing that. And I'm not trying to, like, I'm not trying to, to, to bag on you. I'm trying to call you back into what the Lord has for you. And, and I know, I'm going to use this, Dr. Tony Evans, one of my heroes in the faith, uses this illustration. I was like, that is brilliant. I'm sad I didn't think of it. He was addressing this idea that I can love Jesus and not go to church. I can love Jesus and not make the church a priority. And he said, gosh, this is so good. He's like, uh-huh. And you can be married and not go home. But eventually, eventually, the intimacy and joy of that union will fade. And so I'm calling you back in. You, you got to find your people. You've got to, I know it's scary to be here. I, I know it's scary that, that you might be betrayed, that you might be hurt. These are real truths. I want you eyes wide open into that. I'm saying the Bible creates space for it, the, the power of reconciliation in it, and, and wants to continually invite you into it. So that's the first step of obedience. And then the second one would be this. I, I think we will have to fight against growing only inward growing only inward 
at the loss of external mercy. So we are recipients of mercy, now called by God to proclaim that mercy and to create space for those who are like Lydia, like the demonic slave girl, and like our blue-collar jailer, hungry for the things of God, but not quite sure where to find it and where to go. And so one of the ways that I think it happens is like these people in Philippi, because we can read about this in Philippians, it just happens. Do you know that statistically, the best way to see lost people become Christians is to plant churches? And that the longer a church exists, the longer it exists, the harder it becomes to see people who are really far from God actually come to know him. It becomes increasingly difficult. Why? Well, because we, man, we become Christians and we start to grow. And we became Christians because somebody was vulnerable. Somebody showed us what it looked like to be the people of God. Then it drew us in and we got saved. And then we grew. And then what happens is you start to feel nervous about bringing in the outsider now. And so somebody in our home group says, hey, I've got this friend. He's a bit of a wreck. I'm going to bring him and his wife next Tuesday. And we're like, okay, but listen. If you bring them, I just think the way we talk might have to change. I'm not, I don't know that I'm going to be comfortable sharing, but it was somebody else's vulnerability that drew you in, and now you're nervous about your vulnerability because maybe that person will betray you, and I don't want to, yeah, maybe they will. They are immature. Maybe they will take it and say some nonsense. Maybe they will judge you. Maybe they will run their mouth uh, outside of the group. All of that is true, and yet that is the kind of space that is necessary for those who are far from God to come and see the beauty of his grace, to experience his goodness. And our tendency as Christians is to grow inward and then start to get nervous about outsiders. And the only way to receive mercy and proclaim it is to refuse to do that. And to create space, create space for those who are hungry for mercy. And so I would just say, man, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a Christian and you're looking around and this just looks really pretty to you, I would just assure you that it's not. I mean, you, do you see how many people just raised their hand and just said, hey, somebody here bothers me, somebody here betrayed me, somebody here hurt me? But I could also do this. How many of you have found deep healing and intimacy with the Lord in this place? See, friend? In the book of Revelation, we read this, Lo, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone would open unto me, I would come in and I would dine with him. And dining with him or her in a first century context isn't the way we dine. It's slow, it starts early, it goes late, and it's a sign of intimacy and friendship, which is why the religious of his day accused Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners because dining with someone was very different than the chicken nuggets we throw into the back of our suburban. It meant something. And so Jesus knocks. He doesn't kick open the door. He doesn't force himself in. He just knocks and says, if you'll open, if you'll open this door, if you'll just open it, I will come in and I'm not looking to rehash all your mistakes. I'm not coming in. I haven't come to bring condemnation. I've come to bring life. I've come to save you. I'm going to pour a, a, a glass of new wine from new wineskins. And I want to catch up and I want to talk about some of that hurt. I want to heal some of those deep places. Will you, will you open the door? I, I haven't come to destroy you. I, I've come 
to heal, to help, to be near for the long journey home. Will you open the door? And so as the people of God, there's space for repentance this morning. There just is. Slowly over time, we have become spectators. We didn't start that way. It just happens, man. Life happens. And before you know it, a couple of times a month, we're popping in, we're listening to the sermon, we're, you know, you know, then trying to get out so we can get out of this parking lot, so we can get to the day. I mean, there's only so many days like this a year, and it's, it, just, it just happens slowly. We're just we're spectators in, in this thing that's meant to be really at the, the epicenter of our lives. These, we are our family. Like, look how many church mothers are here. Look at me, church fathers. Look at me, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters God's placed here. Like like closer than blood it should be. It's more eternal than earthly blood. What would it be like to give ourselves over to one another in a way that shows the world? No, no, no. I'm I'm a part of this group of people. This people is serious about holiness, serious about the beauty of God's good design, serious about pushing back darkness, establishing life, heralding the excellencies of the good news of the gospel wherever he's placed me. And so what does it look like to repent of that? I think you've got to move back in. You gotta start coming back. I, I know it's comfortable to watch on your couch or in your media room or in your, you know, I, but, but there's, it's different being in the room. It's different being in the room. It just is. And I'm not saying that because we're desperate for you know, people to come. Gosh, we just kind of figured out space. But listen, you can't keep watching online and thinking you're going to get all the benefits in the same way that when I'm overseas, I can't wait to get back to Lauren. I don't want to just FaceTime her. I want to touch her. I want to see her face. I want to look into her physical eyes. I want to be in the room with her. Not just kind of Thank God for tech. What a terrible substitute for the real thing. Better than nothing. Not what God has intended. And so I want to invite you back in. If you've got some hurts and it's organizational, we'll try to own it as best we can. We really will. We know that we make mistakes. We, we don't see ourselves as infallible. We see the book as infallible. And so if we've sinned against you, please forgive us. Let, let, we, we will do everything we can to try to make that right. If someone else here has hurt you, let's do whatever we can uh, to, to see that healed and made right. But, but let's push back in. Let's try it again. Let, let's find a group. Let's find our people. Let's move towards. And then if you're not a Christian, I, I want to invite you into this family. This is bigger than just your conversion. This is, I, I want to invite you into this people. It's an imperfect people. It's a, it, it can be a foolish people, but it's a people that have found some significant life and, and, and we're committed to one another mostly. And, and, and man, God's doing a good work here. And I, and I want to say, hey, say yes to Jesus this morning and, and come and join us. We'll walk alongside of you. You might have a billion questions about what it means about this and how do I get over this and how do I find victory here? And I'm just going, we're asking the same questions. We're asking them together and we're working through them together here with the power of the Holy Spirit under the weight of the word of God being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so I'm going to pray for us. And while I pray for us, a group of men and women are going to come up front. It's just our prayer team. Our prayer team is going to come up here and they're going to be ready to receive you. And then when I say amen, we're going to stand and sing just for a little bit. Um, And while we're singing, here would be my invitation to you. Man, if you're a Christian that needs to repent and you need to repent out loud to someone, Man, we're, we're here for that. that. That's what we're here for. You're not going to find us gasping or rolling our eyes or can't believe you. No, no, no. This is a place 
to fail and to get back up. To not be okay, but to try not to stay there. It's okay to not be okay. Just the Lord's not going to leave us there. And then maybe today you just never said yes to Jesus. Never said, I'm, uh, I'm in on this. I want into this salvation. I want to repent of my sins. I want to know Jesus. I want to belong to this community of faith. I want to walk this long journey home with this group of people. Man, come let us know that you're saying yes to Jesus. We'd love to celebrate that. Gosh, if, if you want to, we'll baptize you this morning. We've got shorts and T-shirts and towels. And this place goes nuts when we baptize. And we, so we'd love to celebrate you um, and, and new life in you. Uh, and, and then we'll escape to this fall day. Let me pray for us. Father, I bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. I thank you that for those who believe you, there was a day that you knocked on the door of our heart. And by your grace, we opened and you have come in and you have been a God of your word. You have dined with us. You, you have healed and moved in us. You have restored some of the years that the locusts had eaten. We, we invite you even now, Holy Spirit, to move in our hearts, to heal those hurts, to move us back towards your people again. I ask that as the statement says that we'd be a refuge be a refuge for the broken and suffering to receive hope and care. Thank you for just, gosh, what looked to be hundreds and hundreds of hands that went up and said, no, no, I found some healing here. The Lord's been doing a work in me here. I thank you for that. That's your stuff. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.